Welcome to episode 59 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. We have an event coming up this week. It looks like it's pretty much going to be at the UFC Apex. I don't know if it's 100% been confirmed, but the event is confirmed. If it isn't at the Apex, they'll be doing it in Arizona, but it does look like it will be at the UFC Apex. So I'll just go through that entire card and then talk about how I think a lot of those fights are going to go. Uh, next topic is going to be that there were a ton of fight announcements, a lot of pretty big ones as well. Uh, so I'll just recap all of them. After that, I will talk about John Jones's semi-public negotiation with UFC for the Francis Ngannou fight. Uh, we'll talk about the Joe Rogan Spotify deal. <clears throat> then I'll, from from there, I'll, I'll start talking about the um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournament scene. So there was a, a handful of pieces of news coming out. Uh, there was the IBJJF news that the IBJJF, which I've, as I've mentioned many times in the past, is probably the premier tournament scene. They're canceling their entire 2020 season. There are other smaller tournaments that are continuing on so i'll talk about that as a whole and what we know so far recap a bit of a controversy that came up last week with john oliver talking about the return to sports and him taking a few pot shots at the ufc so i'll talk about that segment and the response that dana white had and then the last topic to talk about is going to be fight to win who just had a, another event this weekend they had a couple former major organization champions in there they had rafael lovato and they also had ben henderson so i'll recap those two matches so from the top, I'm not sure what the name is for this event right now. It's called UFC Fight Night Woodley vs. Burns on ESPN, or on ESPN.com. So I guess that's the name they're going with right now. They probably have some kind of number to it. I don't know if 142 is the correct number or not. I know I've seen a lot of numbers thrown around. But either way, the UFC is going to be returning next weekend, which is good, uh, as was expected. The main event is going to be between Tyron Woodley and Gilbert Burns. And the first thing I noticed about this is that the odds just do not seem to be correct at all. So, Gilbert Burns is a very tough fighter. He is a former Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion in the Gi. Uh, obviously, still can hang with a lot of the best guys in the world in Jiu-Jitsu. More of a top player than a bottom player, but it's, again, it's still really good. He had that fight with Damian Maia where Maia had him in a really bad position, and Burns was able to get out, get back to his feet, and then knock him out. Uh, so, on top of his really good Jiu-Jitsu, also has some knockout power, and his striking has been improving over time as he's been training with Henry Hooft. So he's a tough guy to fight. He's one of those guys where you're really worried about him taking you to the ground because of how good his, his jiu-jitsu is. But if you drop your hands too much and get ready to fight underhooks before he even shoots on you, then you're leaving your chin open and you're going to get clipped. So he's a tough matchup for a lot of guys. With that being said, Tyron Woodley is a former champion. Tyron Woodley is also a very difficult matchup himself. He's not a guy who's easy to take down. Uh, Damian Maia tried all, all he could over the course of five rounds and wasn't able to do so. That's not to say that Gilbert Burns can't take him down. It would be to say that I don't think he's going to. And on the feet, sure, Burns can, can definitely hit hard. And if he lands hard on Tyron Lee, you know, he can definitely do a lot of damage. With that being said, I think the last time we see when Lee get knocked out was by Nate Marquardt in Strike Force. And he's fought some pretty good strikers since then. So is the likelihood of him getting knocked down or knocked out very high? Probably not. Uh, so with that being said, you probably would figure, okay, well, the odds are probably like Woodley's a 3-1, to 4-1 to favorite. No, actually not. Uh, when I first saw the odds, I think Woodley was a a minus 180 favorite with Burns coming back at plus 150. So at that point when I saw that, I just put all the money that was in my account on Tyron Woodley. So this is one of the, one of the ones that I'm betting on pretty heavy. I like Gilbert Burns. I, I find him to be a more likable person than Tyron Woodley. So I guess in that way, I'm sort of hedging my bets where if Woodley wins, as I expect him to, then my betting account will take advantage of that. If Burns wins, then cool. Gilbert Burns beat Tyron Woodley, and that's pretty awesome. So I, I guess in that way... There really isn't any loss there for me, and it's not as though I have a ton of money in my betting account. This isn't a major bet, and the the account that I'm using is off of like a a promotional thing, like where 
uh, Betsy Asai, they had a deal with the Justin Gaethje versus uh, Tony Ferguson fight where you pick it if you lose and you don't lose any money. If you win, then you get like 25 bucks, and I picked Gaethje. So I'm pretty much just using the money that I've made in that little mini account. So it's like 40 bucks at this point. Um, but, but aside from that, I, the, the point I'm getting to is that Gilbert Burns is a very good fighter. But him being ranked number six, I feel like this is about as high as he's ever going to go in the division. He wasn't ever this high in the lightweight division. He's a very tough fighter. Uh, had a really rough fight against Dan Hooker before moving up. Likes to get in there, but for him, as far as matchups go, Damian Maya, especially at the time when Maya was ranked where he was, was about as good of a matchup as he can get for someone ranked ahead of him. He got that matchup, uh, was able to get out of trouble, and was able to get the win there. And... You, you know, when you beat a guy who I think at the time was ranked top five, it, it makes sense for you to, to shoot up pretty high as well right after it. But there are guys ranked below Gil, Gilbert Burns, who I don't believe that Gilbert Burns is better than. Um, Tyron Woodley is definitely ranked well ahead of him still. Yes, that fight with Kamaru Usman was a very bad fight for Woodley, and it's sort of tough to forget about it. But with that being said, I, I don't see Gilbert Burns doing to Woodley what Usman was able to do. Um, Burns is striking is just significantly different in terms of how they approach it. Uh, Usman's got a really long reach, a really deceptively long reach, so he's able to kind of keep you at bay. Uh, and, and his wrestling is still really really effective, and once he's able to get a hold of you on, along the fence, even if you have a really good wrestling background like Woodley does, uh, Usman was able to find ways to drag him to the mat. With Gilbert Burns, I he, he's got a reach to disadvantage here. I think the surprising thing is that Burns is moving up from lightweight, but is actually one inch taller. But he's got a three-inch reach, reach disadvantage, um, which is going to make things tough for him. And even if he does get some clean shots, and by shots I'm not referring to punches, but like cleanly shoot in on a takedown attempt, I don't know that I see him really being able to finish and being able to hold Woodley down. So from a grappling standpoint, if it gets to the ground, could it be a problem for Woodley? I mean, you're dealing with a former world champion, so yes, it could be a problem for him. Uh, but I don't see it really getting to the ground. I think if it does, even for a short period of time, Woodley will find his way back up to his feet without really giving up too dangerous of a position. And then on the feet... I mean, look, Woodley likes to back up against the fence a lot, and if he's not landing his shots, then in theory he can be giving away rounds when he does that, but it seems more likely than not to me that he's going to be able to find some shots here against Gilbert Burns and is able to is going to be able to cause some problems for him. So I, w- I would expect Tyron Woodley to get the win here, but again, really big opportunity for Gilbert Burns, and if he does get the win, it's tough to say title shot right now. We still don't know who's going to be fighting Usman. It was supposed to be Masvidal, and they were talking about July. Obviously, coronavirus changed that a lot. Um, but Masvidal is going to be ahead of the winner of this fight regardless. It'll be interesting to see where Leon Edwards sits. So if Gilbert Burns gets the win here, I don't know that he jumps ahead of Leon Edwards in title consideration because of where Ed- Edwards stands, um, because of the fact that he has an eight-fight win streak. If Tyron Woodley wins, I guess because of how long of a reign that he had at the top, for him to get that rebound win... and he'd have a decent case to say, okay, now he's ready for another title fight, given how long he had, had, had how long he had held the title and some of the wins that he had while he was still champion. So, And, and I guess you also have to consider Colby Covington as well. I'm not sure what the plan would be for him, uh, whether they're going to give him a fight with Moss at all. That could be a title eliminator, whether they're just going to straight up give him the rematch, uh, depending on how the timing works out, if they're going to give him a fight with Leon Edwards or as he likes to call him Leon Scott. So it's hard to say that the winner of this fight is going to get a title shot, but they're definitely going to be well-positioned and depending on how the timing works out, if they're looking for a title fight around the right time and one of these guys is freed up, there's definitely a chance that they can get the next shot. So definitely a fight to watch for the welterweight division. Coming event's going to be Blagoy Ivanov versus Augustus Sakai, a couple guys who I think are ranked 
in like the 12 to 14 range at heavyweight. Um, then we got Kevin Holland making a quick return. He'll be fighting Daniel Rodriguez. We've got Roosevelt Roberts versus Brock Weaver. And the return of Mackenzie Dern against Hannah Cyphers. Uh, Dern being a minus 380 favorite here. Uh, on the prelims, I, I think a pretty funny matchup that they put together. So following a loss in a title fight to Valentina Shevchenko, Caitlin Jukagin is going to return to the octagon against Valentina's sister, Antonina Shevchenko. So it'll be interesting to see if Antonina is able to pick up where her sister left off and find a way to dominate, dominate this fight. Granted, Valentina was able to finish that fight on the ground. And I mean, I mean it's not to say that Antonina couldn't do the same, but Valentina's grappling is definitely better than her sister's is. So I don't know that we're going to see a similar finish or a similar strategy to get to the finish. But with that being said, it's still kind of a funny matchup that you have Chukagian lose a title fight and then her next fight out as the champion sister. Uh, next fight on the card is Billy Quarantillo versus Spike Carlisle. Uh, Carlisle's that ginger ninja guy or whatever they call him, uh, but that really interesting ginger dude. Uh, then they got Jamal Hill versus Clitson Abreu. We have Tim Elliott versus Brandon Royville. Louis Smolka versus Casey Kenny, And then Chris Gutierrez versus Vince Morales. So on top of that, the card for the weekend after is the Nunes versus Spencer card. At least what's on ESPN.com right now, and there are going to be some other fights that I'm about to talk about that are likely to be official very soon if they aren't already official. Maybe ESPN.com is just a little bit slow on them. But the main event right now is going to be Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer, which is not the most exciting main event, but, I mean, <laughs> I guess you you got a title there at 145. you gotta you got to have it defended, so there you go. Um, as far as Spencer goes in terms of her finding ways to win here, it's pretty obvious she's not going to win this fight on her feet. Her striking is very bad. Uh, her wrestling isn't great, but it has been effective enough to this point in her career. Uh, against Nunes, it seems like it's going to be pretty difficult for Spencer to get in, get inside on Nunes and at least like be able to initiate a takedown attempt, let alone finish one. And that fight would remain Duranami, though. When Duranami did get on top of Nunes, Nunes did not, not look very good off of her back. Granted, Nunes is a black belt, but didn't exactly grapple like a black belt in that fight. Maybe it was just an exhaustion thing. It's hard to say, but if Felicia Spencer can survive the early rounds and find a way to get on top of Nunes, is it possible that she could pass Nunes' guard, get her in some bad positions, and maybe even find a finish? I mean, I guess it's possible. Is it likely? I, I mean, the gap in striking to me is just so so big here that I just don't see Felicia Spencer finding a way inside and finding a way to take down Amanda Nunes. And if she can't get on top, that's going to be a problem. But even if she is able to get inside and get a takedown attempt, just from what I've seen so far from Felicia Spencer, it's not as though her wrestling is all that impressive either. So this seems like a pretty straightforward fight here where Felicia Spencer should should probably fall to Amanda Nunes, similar to how she fell to Cyborg in the co-main event, or at least currently what's the co-main event. It would be Cody Garbrandt versus Rafael Sunsell. This is a really interesting fight stylistically. So Asuncao is one of those guys who's been hanging around the top of the bandweight division for a while without losing, uh, but has had a couple recent losses. Uh, definitely had that loss to Marais. I think he has another loss. I don't remember exactly who it was to. Might have been Munoz. I, I could be wrong about that. But either way, this is, seems like a difficult fight for him, given that Garbrandt's not an easy guy to take down and control, and Asuncao's got great jujitsu. So in all likelihood, it's going to be a striking matchup. Asuncao hits hard, so it's definitely possible that Asuncao is going to clock Garbrandt, knock him down, and, and finish him that way. Uh, we've seen Garbrandt lose his last three fights that way. But with that being said, Garbrandt's still a really really good boxer. Um, while he has some defensive deficiencies, um, while he doesn't seem to have the best chin in the division, for sure, to, to say it lightly, he still has extre- extremely fast hands, uh, really really good poise in the pocket, decent head movement, pretty, pretty decent defensive fundamentals, even if he occasionally can be a little 
I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the best way to put it. Sometimes when he gets emotional, he can be kind of easy to read. You can kind of tell what's coming from him. Uh, he'll, he'll sort of dig his heels in and start swinging. When he's when he's more relaxed, sort of like the the Dominic Cruz fight, you saw a really smart, um, defensively effective, offensively effective, great timing, great speed in the pocket. If, if we can get that Cody Garbrandt back, it's going to be a problem for a sunset, and I would not be surprised if Garbrandt knocked the sunset out. I think given all the time off he's had and given the change in camp, it seems likely that he's probably going to come out a little bit more tentative regardless just because he's coming back after after a long layoff. And tentative isn't necessarily a good thing in MMA, but for Garbrandt, he's gone so far in the other direction that sort of starting a little bit slower and being a little bit uh, more tactical could actually work out really well for him. So it'll be interesting to see how he comes back. But if we get the Garbrandt that we've had in the past um, – and, and even the Garbrandt that's been there, but <clears throat> that he's chosen to just have stand aside so he can just kind of brawl with people. But if we can get that tactical Garbrandt that's that's existed for a while and that got him all the way to the title, I, I think this should be a, a pretty a pretty big win for him and a pretty big exclamation point, uh, getting a, a finish over a Sunsau and putting himself back in the title picture. Uh, then we have Charles Bird versus Marky Patolo, um, Ian Heinrich versus Gerald Mearshart. Juice Formiga versus Alex Perez, really good flyweight fight. Alonzo Menafield versus Devin Clark. And then from there, there are some other fights that have been talked about. So I'm now going to go through a list of fights that I was able to bookmark from Twitter. So just the last couple of days on Twitter uh, from a handful of different sources, they've just been announcing fight after fight after fight. Uh, so I just kind of bookmarked them, made a list, and I'll just kind of read off that list and talk about each of those fights. So the first one I have on my list is just an awful main event. <laughs> Um, but this is going to be the main event scheduled for June 13th, so this is going to be the week after USC 250, and not next weekend, um, not the weekend after, but the weekend after that. And they are talking about having Jessica I versus Cynthia Calvillo in a main event. If this fight was just an undercard fight, I don't even know if I would have like included it on this list. I probably wouldn't even consider it like a significant enough fight. Um, but if it's going to be a main event, I kind of have to mention it. Uh, to be fair, Jessica I is one of the top contenders at flyweight. So for her, if she gets the win over Calvillo, I, I know the loss was so bad to Valentina Shevchenko that I don't think a lot of people are going to be clamoring to see the rematch, but given where the rest of the division's at, it seems like she might not be too far from earning her way back into it in, into the title picture just because no one else is putting up a better case to do it. Uh, for Cynthia Calvillo, she was someone who had been hyped up for a while. I believe she started at 115, uh, but after a quick rise into the rankings, ran into some... Some tough fights. To me, it wasn't the most surprising thing because when you watched her fight, she was winning a lot of fights just by taking other girls down and just beating them on the ground. But you can tell, like, technically, she wasn't the best. Like, she was pretty flexible and pretty creative on the ground, but she, she was, like, a good purple, maybe lower brown if you really wanted to be generous to her skill set uh, in terms of where it was. And you knew that once she got towards the top of her divisions, she would have trouble dealing with the more technical fighters. And that definitely was the case at 115. Um, Moving up to 125, you know, just guys, not like a, a world beater on the ground, but she's she's got pretty solid jiu-jitsu, so I, I don't see Calvillo taking her down and just controlling her and doing whatever she wants to her there. Uh, if she does get the takedown, it's not like she's going to just run roughshod all over her and catch her in a choke really quick like she had in her early fights at strawweight. Uh, so to me, this seems like a fight that just guys probably going to be in position to win. She's probably going to win. Um, and then at that point... I guess if no one else puts up a better case at 125, then it's probably going to be who you're going to give the title shot to. Uh, but that's going to be a fight that's coming up. 
we have a really big bantamweight fight between Pedro Munoz and Frankie Edgar scheduled for July 11th. So Munoz is coming off of the loss to Aljamain Sterling. Frankie Edgar is coming off of the loss at featherweight to the Korean Zombie. But Edgar was initially going to fight Santag, and now he's got Munoz, so he's still got another guy who's in the top 10 of the division. If he does get a win here, it's going to put him in the top five himself, I'm sure, at which point he won't be all that far from, from earning a title shot. Bantamweight's definitely getting really interesting right now because of... I mean, even if Henry Cejudo was in there, it's not like it wouldn't be interesting still, but with him being gone and with there being that vacant title shot that's looming, uh, in terms of who's going to get that title shot, but then who's going to be next in line once, once that title fight happens... Um, there's a lot of interesting fights that need to happen to to sort of get that division all settled. So this fight's going to go a long way towards that. If Munoz loses here, then it sort of like sticks him towards the bottom half the half of the top ten. Um, doesn't really put him where he wants to be. If Frank Yeager loses, it's pretty clear at this point he's not going to win the featherweight title. Uh, had a rough loss to Holloway. Had a rough loss to Jose Aldo before then. Had a rough loss in a title fight to Max Holloway. So for him, this is pretty much like his last run at a title. And based on what we saw against the Korean Zombie, it seems unlikely that he's going to run run right through the 135 division. But if he does get the win here, he's he's going to be active and he'll, he'll still be live in that title picture. I don't know what the UFC is thinking in terms of whether or not they're going to put him in there. The title picture as a whole right now is a gigantic mess. It sounds like Peter Yan has earned, a, has earned his half of the vacant title fight. But outside of that, you have Jose Aldo, who was supposed to be in the title fight before the travel restrictions. Uh, so is he going to get the next shot? Uh, we have another fight that I'm going to bring up soon, which is the Sandhagen versus Sterling fight. Does the winner of that get the shot? Um, so a lot of fights still need to happen. A lot of chips have to fall, but it sounds like th- there's a lot of good things going on at Bantamweight where that division is going to be really interesting for at least the next year, as a lot of these guys who are pretty close to title shots are going to earn them and have a chance to fight for it. Uh, or they're going to fight each other and someone's going to get knocked off. Uh, another fight that was announced, I don't know if this one's official, I, I think it was more so rumors, but Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker was a fight that was supposed to happen in May. That fight got canceled, I think it was supposed to be in California. Uh, but it sounds like the plan is for them to reschedule that same matchup for June 27th. So that's obviously going to be a really good fight for Dan Hooker. It's good that he didn't lose that fight, because after getting that big win over Paul Felder, put him in a position where he could fight a top-five guy. Had that opportunity after that fight fell apart. Some people were wondering whether or not Poirier was going to fight someone bigger, whether that would be a rematch with Connor, whether he'd fight Tony Ferguson, which I didn't think was a great idea just based off of timing. And it sounds like Tony Ferguson isn't really in a position to be taking a fight anytime soon. So that's good. Um, but good for hooker that he's going to get that fight still uh, for Poirier. If he gets a win, keeps him right where he's at uh, and also keeps him active. Another fight that was announced is a flyweight title fight. It's the rematch between Joseph Benavides and Davis and Figueredo. Uh, this fight was initially earlier this year for the title. Figueredo missed weight, then went on to win by knockout. So there, the the title was vacated. It was expected that the winner was going to get the title, but because the guy who missed weight won the fight, uh, the title is still vac- still vacated. Because Figueredo won the fight, they're still giving him another shot at it. So we're getting the rematch here. Hopefully Figueredo makes weight, and then the winner of the fight actually can win the title. Um, but the first fight was a pretty good fight. Uh, Figueredo won decisively towards the end after a uh, head bet in the second round. Um, but there was some decent back and forth. Benavides was landing some really nice shots uh, and had his moments, especially early on. So there's reason to believe that this will be a competitive fight as well. Uh, but that, again, that's for July 18th. We have another flyweight fight on that card. 
it seems to me that this is intentional, that if Figueredo misses weight, or if Benavides misses weight, but more so Figueredo, because he actually did miss weight before, that he is going to probably just be pulled out of the title fight entirely, and they're going to move up one of the guys from this fight into that title fight. Uh, and this fight is Alexander Pantoja versus Askar Askarov. So again, that's also going to be on July 18th. Another good fight, and this is for the 6th, so that should be UFC 250, is Alex Caceres versus Chase Hooper. Uh, so Caceres, again, gets another hyped-up jiu-jitsu prospect. Um, before it was Crone Gracie, who was an ADCC champion. Now it's going to be Chase Hooper, who was like a juvenile blue belt world champion, and I think it's currently a brown belt. Um, obviously, Chase Hooper is not on the level of Crone Gracie, but jiu-jitsu is his main background, and that's what's gotten to this point in his career. So for him, he'll try to win in a similar fashion to Crone in terms of getting a takedown and immediately getting into a dominant position and getting a submission win. Fight before, or the next fight to talk about is going to be Paige Van Zandt versus Amanda Rebus. This fight was scheduled, I believe, in January. Uh, Van Zandt broke her arm again. Uh, I don't remember if it was a rebreak of the same arm that was broken or if she broke the other arm. Uh, but either way, she had to pull out of the fight. Rebus still fought and was able to get a win in hers. So that'll be a pretty solid fight. I'm pretty sure that afterwards, Paige Van Zandt is probably going to be out of the UFC and will probably move to Bellator with her husband, and she seems perfectly okay with that. Another fight is Marvin Vittori versus Carl Roberson. Vittori was supposed to fight, I believe, on the UFC... I can't remember if it was the pay-per-view card or if it was the card from last week, but either way, uh, last second his opponent pulled out and decided that he was feeling sick and didn't want to fight. So for Vittori, he was really upset. He had put in a lot of work for that training camp and have his, his opponent back out. So for him, he's got another fight lined up and another fight lined up soon. This is going to be on June 13th. Uh, there's the Garbrandt Sunset fight, which I've already talked about. Uh, for June 20th, Josh Emmett versus Shane Burkos at Featherweight. That's going to be a really good fight. Emmett, uh, really heavy hitter, pretty good wrestling, fighting out of Team Alpha Male versus Burgos, a really solid all-around technical boxer. Uh, tough to take down and on the feet, really good at picking guys apart and puts on a lot of really exciting fights. On the June 6th card, so this is going to be on UFC 250. This one, I, I can pretty much conform, confirm for you, is, is fact. I know for a fact it, it was signed on Wyland's side. I'm pretty sure it was signed on O'Malley's side as well. Um, but Shukashan O'Malley will be returning against Eddie Wineland. Reading the comments on this fight announcement was kind of funny because it sounds like a lot of people think that Sean O'Malley is just a gigantic favorite here and that he's probably going to just run through Eddie Wineland. First off, I'll admit I'm incredibly biased towards Eddie Wineland. Like, as I mentioned in the past, I train at the same gym as him. It's not as though I train with him fairly often. He lives in, in Indiana. I live in Illinois. Uh, the gym that I train at is in, is in Illinois. Uh, he also works as a first responder, so oftentimes when I'm training, it's oftentimes at night. Uh, I work a normal 9-to-5 job, and then I'll go train afterwards. Whereas with him, oftentimes when he comes in, it's during special special training sessions during the morning that tend to be like invite-only, so usually I'm at work at, during those times. So I, I've worked with him in the past, but it's not like I'm constantly in the gym with him and constantly working with him. But with that being said, his corner is going to consist of – his coaches are also my coaches, so – I'm definitely biased towards him, and some of the things I'm going to say are going to be coming from that. But with that being said, based off of what I know about him and based off of what I know about Sean O'Malley, this fight is not a fight where O'Malley should be a major favorite. As a matter of fact, I've already put money down on Eddie Wineland, not just because I'm biased, but because I think that this is actually going to be a very difficult matchup for O'Malley. O'Malley, look, here's the thing, and this happens in a lot of divisions, at least in the deeper divisions like Bantamweight and um, some of the lower weight classes. These guys, like Sean O'Malley, tend to get sniped, usually right around the time that they get into that top 15 range. And a similar guy to talk about in Bantamweight specifically would be Song Yudong, where he was a guy who was just lighting guys up, 
uh, worked his way towards the top of the division, or started to get some of the top guys, fought against Cody Stamen, who is sort of like in that 10 to 15 range, got beat, then had another fight with Marlon Vera, and as far as I'm concerned, got beat there. If you're just a guy who is knocking guys out because you have great power, because you have great timing, that can get you pretty far in some skilled weight divisions, but eventually you're going to start dealing with guys who are incredibly skilled on top of the on top of the power, and that's when things start to get difficult. Another guy at featherweight to, to look at um, was Korean Superboy, where he was just running through guys, uh, ran into Cub Swanson, then got knocked off, ran into Jeremy Stevens, got knocked off. Like This happens fairly often where you have guys who just look really exciting fighting against unranked guys, but as they fight some of the more skilled guys, they have some trouble. What I've seen of Sean O'Malley so far He's got great timing. He's deceptively long, deceptively fast. But oftentimes he likes to get his opponents to sort of freeze up and freeze up in front of him, and they'll just kind of pick pot shots on him or, or sort of get them to to take shots that really aren't or to, to try to hit him in ways where they're not really setting it up all that well, and it's kind of easy to read. Uh, and then he'll kind of counter off of that. But for him, it's very important for him that his opponents stay straight in front of him. Eddie Wineland does not stand straight in front of anyone. Eddie Wineland is very good about his movement, very good moving laterally, um, cutting angles. So for O'Malley, it's going to be, first off, Wineland is fairly different in how he approaches striking compared to most other guys, as Joe Rogan's mentioned in the past. Like, he's one of those guys where if you just put a silhouette around him, you know who he was just because how unique it is. So for O'Malley, it's going to take some time for him to get his reads on Eddie Wineland. For him, if Wineland isn't standing straight in front of him, a lot of his push kicks that he likes to use from range aren't going to be as effective. Uh, with that being said, if you just kind of throw blind kicks at Eddie Wineland, especially if he checks him, that can be a serious problem. One of the worst things I've done in training is trying to kick Eddie Wineland when he was able to read in without setting it up. Um, that hurt like fuck. So if that's something O'Malley wants to try to do like he does with some other fighters, that's going to be difficult for him. So is it possible that Sean O'Malley can win this fight? Obviously, he's a guy who's got really good power, really good speed, really good timing. But this is a much different matchup than some of the other ones he's had in the past a lot of the guys who he's fought in the past have stood straight in front of him and O'Malley's been able to take advantage of that Wineland's not going to stand straight in front of him Wineland has a lot of power of his own and for O'Malley a guy who keeps his hands down that can be dangerous O'Malley punches well or he punches hard he's got good speed and good time because not as though his boxing is the best fundamentally not to say that Wineland has the best fundamental boxing but he's very dangerous in the pocket he's very dangerous with his counters and if O'Malley doesn't set up his punches right and stand up in, within boxing range, it's definitely possible that Wyland's going to land some really hard shots on him and possibly put him down and put him out. So if you're seeing odds where O'Malley's a 4-1 to favorite and you want to take out a, a pretty solid flyer bet, I, I would definitely encourage putting some money down on Wineland. And the final fight to mention is one that I've already brought up, but this is also supposed to be on the June 6th card, and that's going to be Aljamain Sterling versus Cody Sanhagen. As I mentioned, the winner of this is likely going to find themselves in a title fight. Now, with that being said, one of the big things you have to account for in MMA is going to be injuries. I don't know what kind of fight we're going to see here, if this is going to be a quick fight where the winner is likely to be relatively uninjured. Sandhagen has those types of fights every so often. He's a very good technical striker. Uh, He he can put guys away and take minimal damage in doing so. Uh, For Sterling, it's possible if he's able to take Sandhagen down. Sandhagen's had some trouble on the ground in the past, not to say Sandhagen has bad jiu-jitsu, uh, the guy who's giving him trouble is an excellent black belt in Yuri Alcantara, but Sanhagen practically got his arm broken in that fight, was able to come back and still find a way to win, which is an impressive feat for Sanhagen. But with that being said, it, it leads to the possibility that if Aljamain Sterling is able to take him down, Sterling is very dangerous on, on top, uh, really good passing guard, really good on top um, in terms of his ground and pound as well. So 
Sterling has a path to victory here. Sandhagen has a path to victory. I think Sandhagen should definitely have the advantage on the feet. But if it goes to the ground, it should be advantage for Sterling. The question is going to be, how does Sterling want to approach this? Does he want to approach it like the Munoz fight, where he just uses his length and just tries, tries to outpoint him? Is that going to work for him? I, I guess it's possible. This isn't a five-round fight. Uh, if, if you're able to steal a couple rounds doing that, that'll be enough for you. As far as how he'd be able to get inside and take Sandhagen down, if Sterling's fighting the same way that he fought against Munoz, and again, there's a major difference here. Munoz is like the last guy in the division you want to shoot on because of how good his guillotine is, whereas Sandhagen's a guy you're not going to be as concerned about shooting on. Um, but if you're just kind of jabbing from the outside and throwing push kicks from the outside, it's not going to be easy to set up your takedowns. Uh, so he's going to have to get into the pocket a little bit more if he wants to be able to set up some takedowns. That might work in Sandhagen's favor. So it'll be interesting to watch. And uh, again, as I mentioned, if the winner of this fight doesn't take too much damage, it seems like a pretty high likelihood that they're going to get a shot at Peter Yan for the... I guess not interim, but the vacated flyweight, or not flyweight, bantamweight title. All right, next topic from there is going to be John Jones. I mentioned a little bit about this last week, that he was talking about fighting Francis Ngannou, and pretty much just said I, I don't take it all that seriously, and I thought it was kind of weird that he was going out of his way to say that he deserved more money if he wanted to take this fight. One of the interesting things I noted is that when he was tweeting about the negotiations that he had with the UFC about this this week, one of the tweets that he put out there is that the UFC straight up said, we're not going to increase your base pay, but we're willing to work with you on pay-per-view. And in Jones's perspective, that was like a non-starter. Like that was a disrespectful offer. Like, oh my God, how could you say that to me? I think that's insane. So first off, we're talking about fighter pay. In, in, in terms of fighter pay, fighters are going to make more money when the event or they're going to be worth more money, I should say, when the event makes more money. So if you have a fighter who's main eventing a card that rakes in $100 million in revenue versus a fight, the same fighter on another card raking in $150 million in revenue, which card should they get paid more for? It should be the card that rakes in $150 million in revenue. Makes sense, right? So if the UFC is offering it, coming out with their offer saying, hey, look, we're going to give you more money, assuming this fight sells more, that makes sense to me. Like that's right in line with what the UFC does. So if you're John Jones and you th you honestly believe that the Francis Ngannou fight is going to bring in more pay per view buys and make more money than say a rematch with Reyes or a fight with Jan Blahovich, then the offer of we're going to give you more pay per view money should be a very good offer to you, and that should be something that you would want to follow up on. So for him to say to to come out and say actually no, I'm not going to do that. Um, that's crazy. I can't believe you guys are like that. This is just ridiculous. Like, if that's how we're going we're gonna to negotiate, I'm just not even going to talk about taking this fight. That, that just seems wild to me. Like, you don't get paid based off the difficulty of what you do. You get paid based off of the amount of revenue you're able to bring in. And that applies to union sports, too. Like, if you look at the NFL, for example, uh, where they have a salary cap in place, if you play in the NFC South, which right now is Tom Brady on the Buccaneers, uh, they've got Matt Ryan, a former MVP, on the Falcons, and the Falcons were looking pretty good at the end of last season. you got the Saints, who are always good, and the, the Panthers look like a pretty solid team as well. That's one division. You have another division like the AFC East now where you have the Brady-less Patriots, the Jets, the Dolphins, and the Bills. Obviously, the NFC South, much stronger division than the AFC East. You don't get paid more if you play in the NFC South because the NFC South is a harder division than the AFC East. That's not how it works. Like Money, money in sports, whether it's union or non-union, is not based around how hard is your job or how hard are you going to work or who do you have to play against. 
in general, it's based on revenue, especially for the salary cap leagues, where the salary cap is pretty much just based around a revenue share, where the, the players are going to get X percentage of league revenue, and obviously the more money the league brings in, the more money the players are going to make. So this idea that John Jones should make more money fighting Ngannou just because he's fighting a, a perceivably harder fighter to fight against, just, it, it doesn't really make sense. If he does think it's going to draw more money, though, which, again, would make sense for him to get paid more if the fight's going to draw more, then what's the issue with the offer of more pay-per-view money? Like, to me, I, I'm not sure what exactly John Jones is looking for here, but if he honestly believes that this fight with Francis Ngannou is going to make a ton of money and sell a ton of pay-per-views, then the UFC saying, hey, we're going to give you a bigger cut of the pay-per-view should be a great offer. So, again, based off his tweets, not as though he threw the actual numbers out there, maybe he feels like he's getting a pretty small cut of pay-per-views as is, and the offer that the UFC made was still too small of an offer. But to me, if you think that this fight is going to sell a ton, and I think there's reason to believe it's going to sell pretty well, then an offer for a better cut of the pay-per-view should be a very a very good offer and an offer that you're willing to accept. So it's odd to me that John Jones, not only was he publicly saying, hey, the UFC's giving me shit offers, but in saying so, he highlighted that they were willing to pay him more in pay-per-view and like highlighted that as a as a bad offer. And I'm, I'm just not seeing it. Uh, I do think it's funny that a lot of people, at the thought of a fighter complaining about pay, that they just sort of wet their pants and not in a peeing way, but, you know, the other way from the front. Um, that they were like, oh, this is why the UFC needs a union. Look how bad the UFC treats their fighters. Look how little they pay their fighters. And there were like some people trying to say, well, John Jones only makes $500,000 a fight, but Canelo Alvarez made $35 million. And it was nice to see at least like Ariel Hawani, among other people, was like, actually, no, John Jones makes a hell of a lot more than 500000 a fight. Like, if you honestly believe that, I got a bridge to sell you. Um, but on top of that, like I mentioned with the union sports thing, because I thought one of the funny things was John Fitch, who was sort of lazily been trying to advocate for the Ali Act in MMA. He was like, hey, John, if you don't like this, then get on board and support the Ali Act. Like I mentioned, in union sports, it's not as though they get a ton of money for for their matches or for their for their games based off of how difficult what they're doing is, like John Jones is asking for. And oftentimes, if you're in the John Jones position in union sport, you're getting fucked. Quite frankly, you're getting fucked. If you look at who the NFL MVP was, it was Lamar Jackson. I believe Lamar's on a rookie deal right now. To say he's making $5 million this year would probably be an overstatement from the Baltimore Ravens. Um, but you look at the value that he brought his team versus the $5 million he was making for the entire season. Lamar Jackson's getting fucked, and the NFL is a union. Uh, if you look at hockey, the best player in hockey right now is Sidney Crosby. He is on a deal that averages $8.7 million a year, although that includes like some $5 million years in the back end of his career. I think the bigger years for him are around $12 million. But even still, the, the Penguins are probably worth like $800 million right now. Uh, he's won three cops for them. Sells a ton of merch for them. Is Sidney Crosby worth $12 million of the Penguins? No, he's worth a hell of a lot more. But because the NHLPA agreed to the deal that they have, uh, they have the salary caps in place. They have the max deals in place. Guess what? Sidney Crosby's making a lot less than what he, what he deserves. Uh, in the NBA, they have max deals as well. LeBron James, relative to what LeBron's value is, he's underpaid. So this idea that, hey, John Jones, you should want a, want a union so you can get what you're worth, I would actually argue that boxers especially, like Floyd Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather's not underpaid. Um, Conor McGregor, not really underpaid. I, I don't know exactly what he makes after all the pay-per-view points, but if he hasn't underpaid, it's not by as big of a margin as a lot of these 
guys in the union sports are underpaid by. So for John Jones, the answer to his problems are not going to be a, a fighter's union. The answer to his problems are going to be to decide, do I understand that the more pay-per-views I sell, the more money I'm going to be making? And if that's the case, do I think that this particular matchup is going to sell more pay-per-views? If yes, uh, then what can I negotiate from the UFC in terms of pay-per-view points? Uh, am, I gonna, am I going to negotiate X dollars per buy, like $2 per buy? Uh, am I going to negotiate a percentage of revenue? Like, how do I want to do this? And if you're negotiating percentage of revenue, does that include the gate? Uh, if it does include a gate, then how long are we going to be waiting until that fight gets made? Because it doesn't look like they're going to be gates anytime soon. So th- these are all things to consider. But from what John Jones said, I really don't see the issue with the offer that the UFC made. Now, again, like I said, UFC, he, he didn't say the actual numbers. So without the numbers at play, it's hard to say whether or not the UFC was offering him a shitty offer. But just in principle, if the UFC is offering him a better cut of pay-per-view, and that's where, where they're negotiating from, it sounds like they're being pretty fair. Next topic to talk about is the Joe Rogan Spotify deal. Uh, I don't think this is going to have an effect on him working at UFC events. I, I think for him, he's the guy who just does what he enjoys to do. And he enjoys doing the podcast. He enjoys doing stand-up comedy. Uh, and he enjoys doing the UFC pay-per-views. So I think he'll still be working the UFC pay-per-views. I don't think it's going to have an effect there. Uh, for him, he was making a ton of money from the podcast as it was. I think with the way that this deal works, he's still going to make a lot of the same money he was making before. He's not going to be making YouTube ad money anymore. Uh, but he's going to get that licensing money from Spotify. I'm pretty sure he's still going to be selling ads within his podcast. I think Spotify, based off what I know about Spotify, so if Joe Rogan has like a three-hour a three hour podcast, normally with Spotify, if you have the free version, they'll kind of pop their ads in the middle of the of what you're listening to. So I'm sure if you're listening to a three-hour podcast, Spotify will insert their own ads in there that, they'll, that Spotify will make money off of. And I don't think Joe Rogan's going to get a piece of it. I think he's just going to get his licensing deal. Uh, but Joe will also have his, his ads in there as well. So if he's got an ad for Manscaped or whatever else he does ads for, I think he'll still be able to run those ads in there. Now, granted, if he's just on Spotify, there's a pretty decent chance that he's going to get a smaller audience. Uh, not as though it's going to be like a tiny audience on Spotify, but it's not going to be as big as what he has now where he's on every other podcast platform and he's on YouTube. Uh, so if he's selling ads at a CPM basis, which CPM is cost per thousand listeners or cost per thousand of whatever um Cost for that isn't going to apply to a lot of different things based off what your specific medium is. Um, but if he's, if he's selling it off of, based on CPM and the there's a smaller listener count, then he might be making a little bit less on the ads, but he should still be making money on the ads as well. So for him, it's not just going to be the money that he's making from Spotify. He'll also be making money on top of that. So he, he's, he's making out real well here. There's been some talk about how this is going to change podcasts forever. I don't know about that. I think it's more so Spotify making an aggressive move into the podcasting space. Spotify's already been in the podcasting space. Um... I've been on Spotify for a long time uh, just because for most people when they have podcasts, you, you set up your podcast on a host. So for me, my host my host site is Anchor. And once you set up your your feed there, they'll shoot out the, the link. It's called an RSS feed to a bunch of different host platforms. Spotify is among them, and Spotify will host them there. So in theory, if you wanted to listen to this podcast, you, you could listen to it on Spotify now. So that's still going to be the case with them. I think for them, though, by exclusively having Joe Rogan, it's just going to be something where people are like, okay, well, I have to download Spotify to listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, and while I'm already there, oh, hey, look at all these other podcasts I, I can listen to as well. Uh, so to me, I, I don't necessarily seeing a bunch. I, I don't see there being a bunch of big podcasts getting scooped up by a bunch of different spots. We all remember when Howard Stern went from radio to getting scooped up by Sirius, and there was this thought, oh, well, everyone's going to start getting scooped up by Sirius now, but a lot of local stations are still running as they were before. So for podcasting, 
it, it's good to have someone on the, at the top of the game to, to make a ton of money like that, but it's not as though I, I think this is going to lead to a major change in how podcasts are done. I think it's more so Spotify trying to draw in more podcast listeners, get guys to come for Joe Rogan and then listen to all their other podcasts while they're there. And in doing so, as I mentioned before, the more podcasts you listen to on Spotify, especially if you're doing the free service, then you're, you're getting ads fed to you. And if you don't want the ads fed to you, then you're paying for the premium service, which is good for Spotify as well. So I think that's what their, their real plan is here on that. Next topic is going to be Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments. So for Jiu-Jitsu, for some of their bigger events, like Fight to Win and ADCC, those can be invite-based. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the economy for Jiu-Jitsu is going to be tournaments. It's going to be guys at local gyms signing up to tournaments and competing. And that's something that was taken away after COVID began. And a real question has been, when is this ever going to return? Not just from a standpoint of how are we going to get a bunch of people in the same gymnasium or in the same stadium, depending on how big it is, uh, all the lineup, cut weight, uh, warm up together, and then compete against each other. And it sounds as though we're starting to get some sort of idea on when these things are going to return. So for the IBJJF, which is the biggest one, um, their world championships are known as the the main world championships. So if you win an IBJJF world championship, you're considered a legitimate world champion in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Whereas if you win like a Naga world champion, no one really gives a shit. Um, but IBJJF, they're going to be out for the rest of the year. That's their plan right now. But for some other tournaments, including Grappling Industries, they're already looking at when they're going to return. Uh, Grappling Industries, their return event right now is set to be on July 18th, and that's going to be in Dallas. Uh, And then they plan on going back to the schedule after that. It sounds like Tap Cancer Out is looking to return after July as well. Uh, And then we're seeing some other smaller smaller tournament tournament events that are talking about returning late summer, early fall. So as someone who likes to compete at those, it's it's definitely good to hear that those are coming back. It's definitely good for the jiu-jitsu community. Uh, it'll be good for the the people who run those tournaments. So they're gonna be able to bring in some revenue again and be able to return to return to business. It's gonna be good for the competitors. So they can go back out there and compete again. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, if, if you're getting paid to referee and that was a nice little side gig for you, and that'll be an option for you as well. So for me, that that'll be nice to to have that come back. As far as how these tournaments are gonna work, though, and is it actually gonna be something that's gonna work for them from a business standpoint? That I think is something worth considering. Again, it's going to depend on the market. If you're going back to a state that's been open for a little while, you're probably going to have a higher likelihood of people signing up. But for the most part, with these tournaments, they're making most of their money off of kids and lower belts. Um, a lot of these smaller tournaments aren't getting a ton of purple belts, brown belts, and black belts signing up, uh, paying the fees, and then competing. A lot of the money they make is off of the kids, and it's also off of like your white belt tournaments and your blue belt tournaments. And during this whole situation... If you were like a black belt, if you're a gym owner, um, or if you're like one of the top guys at your school, there's a decent chance that you were probably training throughout this time. Uh, if you own the gym, then obviously you own the mats, and you, you can find ways to train and bring your best students along to train with you. If you were one of the best students, then they they might have brought you along. Obviously, in MMA, if you're bringing in a lot of money and a percentage of your per, of your fight purse is going to your coach, and a win bonus doubles that fight purse, then they're gonna go out of the way to make sure that they can accommodate you. But if you're like a white belt or a blue belt or a kid, uh, it's a different story. And I think for a lot of them, they're really not training during this time. So for them, how soon are they going to be ready to go back to competition? Uh, how soon are they going to feel comfortable with it? I, I guess first off, the comfortable part, there are going to be some people who just aren't comfortable returning to training in general. Um, but then among those who are, a lot of them are going to find that it is not the same as it had been a couple of months ago. And 
okay. So obviously I've got some friends at my gym and I've gotten back to training a little bit more recently. And in my experience, one of the first things I noticed was that I was just exhausted um, compared to how I'd been before prior to this whole lockdown situation. If I was rolling, if I was sparring with someone, if I saw something that I wanted to do, I would do it. Uh, wouldn't think about how much energy it takes. Um, wouldn't even necessarily be like super concerned about like, what if I mess up and end up in a bad position? Cause again, if I do like, oh, well, I'll find my way out of it. Uh, but what I was finding right, right away when I got back on my first day was this is rough. Like I, I have to like start putting myself on a pitch count. Like I've only got so much energy for so many movements over the course of a round. Uh, and it sucked. My timing was off. Um, even over time as I've like been training a little bit more with the, with the friends who have, who have access to mats, like the, the timing just isn't there. Like I feel a lot worse than I had been, um, prior to this lockdown. Uh, there was like a meme that I saw where they were saying like, if you're a purple belt returning, uh, you're basically like a blue belt who took a five year, a five year hiatus. Like if you're a black belt returning, you're like a lazy purple belt. Just the idea being that after returning from the lockdown, you're just not going to feel like yourself um, from a cardio standpoint, but then also from a from a skills and timing standpoint. And so for a lot of guys, they're going to be able to work that rust off, but the question is going to be how long is it going to take them, take them to work that rust off? I can tell you right now, I'm not interested in competing right now. I've got I've got to clean my game up, and then I've got to clean up, clean, up my, clean up my gas tank, clean up my timing um, before I'm ready to compete again. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how a lot of other people are feeling about this situation. Um, but for these tournaments to work, they're going to need kids, which it seems like kids' programs are kind of the last to come back, which is going to be kind of tough. They're going to need white belts and blue belts who probably haven't been training over the course of this lockdown. Uh, so for them, you're going to lose a decent portion who just don't want to come back. But then for those who do come back, they're, they're going to want, want to get themselves back in, back to where they were before this all started, before they want to compete. So to me, the big thing I'm going to want to watch for and I'm going to look at in terms of how many people sign up for these tournaments is what kind of business are they doing right now coming right off of the lockdown and is this something where they are going to be profitable and they can actually just keep running these or are they going to be losing money based off of all the all the costs involved in terms of setting these things up in the first place so it'll be cool to watch for if grappling industries finds that they're able to be pretty able to be pretty profitable here then there's a pretty decent chance that other other tournaments are going to follow i don't know if the ibjf is going to reverse course and come back in 2020 um, prior to their announcement, I had heard that there was talk about them like doing worlds in August. So to go from rumors of them having the world championships in August to them just being completely done for all of 2020, I think it's pretty interesting, especially since IBJJF is international, which means that if there was any tournament circuit out there that you would figure would find a way back, um, the soonest would probably be them. Because for them, they can pretty much just pick any spot in the world that's done with their lockdowns and opened up and say, okay, well, we're going to move over there. Whereas like grappling industries, which I guess they've done some international tournaments, but they're mostly domestic to the U.S. Uh, and then some of the other ones that are domestic to the U.S. For them, they're just kind of stuck in the U.S. and stuck in North America, um, so they don't have as many options. But it'll be interesting to see how things go from here. I'm, I'm glad to see that some of these tournaments are looking to get back. Um, not super surprised that grappling industries was so eager to get back, given what I have experienced with them in the past, as I had mentioned back when this COVID thing started. I was officiating a grappling industries tournament for them, on the week when everything just broke loose. So again, that week was the week where I think on Wednesday was when the NBA canceled after Rudy Gobert tested positive. Um, so that was on Wednesday. Then Thursday, the NHL, MLB, and a bunch of other leagues followed suit. Uh, Friday, pretty much everything was closed, and the UFC was like, yeah, we're not going to have anyone at our event this coming Saturday in Brasilia. Uh, but then they did at least have the event in Brazil. Um, but over the course of that week, the IBJJF canceled their Pan American event. Uh, Fight to Win ended up having to cancel an event later on as well. 
Uh, but Grappling Industries was pretty adamant that they were not going to cancel unless they were forced to, uh, and they had no desire to do so. And I ended up actually refereeing a tournament for them then. So to, to see how they were handling the situation back in March, uh, and then to see them eager to come back in July is not a major surprise, and it, it's definitely something that I'm I'm happy about and proud of them for. Next topic is going to be John Oliver criticizing the UFC and Fight Island. So there was a clip that came out on social media that was like a minute long where John Oliver was pretty much just criticizing the UFC in terms of them having this workaround of Fight Island and then the, the naming of it. Um, the clip itself didn't seem like he was going too hard on the UFC, so I had to like go back and watch the actual video that it, the full video came from to see what he was saying about the UFC. He really didn't dig specifically into the UFC all that hard. I, I think the main idea of his video was that he seems to be operating, operating under the assumption that COVID-19 is the super deadly virus and super dangerous virus that professional athletes should do everything they can to avoid. And if one of them gets it, you have to like shut everything down. And so under that assumption, here's why the MLB can't work. And here's why all these other sports can't work. And oh, by the way, the UFC had a fighter test positive, which is really, really bad. Um, but it's not as though he was like going on a diatribe about the UFC. There was sort of like this, this implication based off what he was saying that trying to make sports work right now is a bad idea. And if someone tests positive, then that's, should be like a, a disqualifying factor but he never really like ripped into the ufc too bad the, the main thing he was saying was that for the ufc to have this idea of fight island that it was a stupid idea um that they're just trying to find workarounds and not necessarily just follow the law and follow what what science is what the scientists supposedly are saying that they should do um and then he like went on this little rant about how the ufc could, could have had a more clever name than fight island uh, including UF and then SEA for C. As far as that goes, I saw some people who had different thoughts on that. It, it sort of depends on who you are. If you're sort of like a, a clever journalist type of person, maybe like the the pun of UFC might be more interesting to you than Fight Island. I think for fight fans, just Fight Island itself, like that phrase might not sound the most creative, but to me, like the idea of a Fight Island, it, it sort of like brings a lot to it leaves a lot to imagination. I think that's a good thing. There's a lot of positive things you can imagine there. Uh, just imagining what a fight, fight Island would look like and imagining watching some fights that were taking place at a place called Fight Island. Um, so to me, I have no issue with the name Fight Island. I don't think they should have called it UFC. I think that's just a lame pun. But if you like UFC, that's that's perfectly fine up and up to you. But that's sort of the, the main thing with it. I know Dana White also tweeted at John Oliver when saying um, that he normally finds Oliver funny but thought that this was out of line. I mean... John Oliver, he, he just is what he is. Like he's a he's a political comic, um, and by that he he does a show that he has a bunch of writers for, um, covers a lot of political topics. Not exactly the most um, politically active guy. There are guys who do political comedy, but will also like engage in the war of ideas on politics. Like you have like a guy like Stephen Crowder, for example, where he um, does a lot of, a lot of similar things to what John Oliver does, um, but he'll also like do debates with people. Whereas John Oliver, like he'll rip on you for having a different opinion than him or he'll rip on you for having a different political stance than him, but he's never actually like going to debate someone or on top of that debate, someone who's like well-versed in that specific topic. He's just more, um, someone who's kind of like throws cheap jabs at you. And again, that's fine. There are people who do that on both sides of the aisle. It's not as though like John Oliver is unique in what he does, but that just is what he does. Um, next topic. And then the final topic to talk about is going to be fight to win. So they held an event over the weekend. Um, the main event was between Rafael Lovato and, Maidana was the last name in, let me see, I think it was Arnaldo Maidana. Let me confirm that real quick. 
Yeah, Arnaldo Maidana. Uh, so that was the main event. So for Lovato, we remember him beating Gegard Musasi to win the Bellator title. Um, hadn't defended it for quite a while. Then went on Joe Rogan's podcast and revealed why that was. That he had some brain issues that made it seem as though probably not a great idea for, for him to be getting head, hit in the head anymore. So as a result, he had to retire and vacate his middleweight title as a result. Um, but with that being said, he still find a grapple, and I think for him, if you were to tell or if you were to tell Rafael Lovato, you can't ever do jiu-jitsu again in your life. Like, if he believed you, then I think within a month he'd probably off himself and be done with it. And I, I think if anything, we, we've kind of seen with this COVID lockdown, there are a lot of people where some of them may even like consider COVID to be dangerous to them. But it's just like you know what, I'm not going to stop doing what I love, and if this is going to be how I go, then then so be it. I think Lovato is kind of one of those guys too, where he's gonna at least be doing jujitsu until he can no longer physically do jujitsu anymore. And a spot on the brain is not good, but that spot on the brain is not gonna stop him from doing jujitsu. And so he returned to competition here and was able to get a pretty dominant win here against Maidana. So that was pretty good to see. In the co-main event, it was Edwin Najmi, who was winning world championships at pretty much every belt but black belt. Um, but it's still a really dangerous guy at black belt. Uh, him versus ben- Benson Henderson. Najmi is known for his flying triangles. Went for a flying triangle early against Henderson. Uh, Henderson was able to get out pretty easily, though. Um, but then, I'm trying to think of what the exact setup was on the sweep, but there was a sweep attempt from Najmi where he pretty much had Ben, ben Henderson on his back. Uh, and then as Henderson was trying to work his way back up, Najmi went from trying to solidify top position to then like switching over to a triangle. So while Henderson is just saying, let me get on top, Najmi is like, okay, let me just shoot a triangle on him. Uh, so really good timing there in that scramble to ticket that triangle and then Najmi being as good as he is at triangles was able to find a finish and Henderson's definitely a tough guy to, to finish a triangle on but Edwin Najmi's got to be among the best in the world at finishing triangles and was able to do so there especially in the gi where he was able to use lapel grips so that covers it for this week next week we will have a recap of the Woodley versus Gilbert Burns fight um, I gotta tell you I'll be really disappointed if the Woodley versus Gilbert Burns fight comes out and the walkout songs for for Tyron Woodley or is if the walkout song for Tyron Woodley is not one of his songs, whether that's In and Out of Love or whether it's um, I'll Beat Your Ass, um, he needs to walk out to one of those. Uh, and then for Gilbert Burns, no question whether it's just the song itself or it's a remix of it, he has to come out to the song that's referred to as the Coffin Dance, but it's technically Astronomia by um, by Vice Tone and Tony Iggy. Um, but that song that goes along with the meme that Gilbert Burns have been posting over Twitter for much of a month. It's got to walk out to that. Sort of odd that Gilbert Burns hasn't been posting much of those lately. I guess he's been really busy training, but that was something that, that defined him early on in the lockdown, and if he doesn't walk out to the Coffin Dance song, I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed, myself included. Um, but I'll be recapping that event next week. Uh, I'll be talking about UFC 250. Um, there's probably going to be some jiu stuff to talk about as well, especially with Fight to Win, so I'll, I'll bring that up as well, and it seems as though now that a lot of fight announcements are being made, especially the big ones, we're going to see more fights that are going to be announced, and I'm sure I'll have plenty to talk about it along those lines as well. So hope you guys enjoyed this, this podcast, and hope there's a lot more to talk about next week.